Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director David Michaud's new historical drama, The King. The film stars Timothy Chalamet as Prince Hal, who had turned his back on royal life to live among the people until the death of his tyrannical father. Now crowned King Henry V, the young ruler is forced to embrace the world he had previously tried to escape and must steer his way through palace politics, chaos, and the war his father left behind. In addition to The King, Mr. Michaud's credits include the feature films Animal Kingdom, The Rover, and War Machine, and an episode of the series Enlightened. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Michaud spoke with director Neil Berger about filming The King. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. So congratulations to David. It's an amazing movie. I, thought, I for one, thought it was incredibly beautiful and, and powerful and Excellent. with incredible performances. Um, and um, so, you know, I was just curious why, you know, what, what drew you to this? Why did you want to make this movie? Uh, big, uh, Joel Edgerton wanted me to do it. <laughs> He had, uh, um, he, Joel in Sydney, I didn't know him back then, but when he was fresh out of drama school, he had played, um, he played Hal in the Henry Four plays and Henry Five um, on stage to much acclaim. Um, I think it was a seminally important career experience for him. Um, you know, it was with the, uh, I think it was a Bell Shakespeare production, but like a very prestigious um, theatre company in Sydney. Um, and it was a little bit of a career maker for him fresh out of, fresh out of drama school. And so I think, you know, some, about 2013 or something, he was, he came to me and said, how would you feel about tackling Henry V? Um and I thought it was a terrible idea, uh, mainly because I, um, it, I don't know why, but it had never, it would never have occurred to me to 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 make a medieval film, to you know, a uh, 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 swords and horses. But you know, as seems to be so often the case with me, I um, it's it, very quickly the challenge of doing the thing I th- I might have thought I didn't want to do became the reason to do it. And um, you know what kind of what version of that would 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 I do? What would we would we do? Um, became uh, became the draw. Right, right. So I mean, you've made four very different kinds of films now. I mean, they're they're all amazing. Animal Kingdom and The Rover and War Machine and now this this movie, The King. Um, is there something that for you? I mean, they are very sort of in a way, four different genres. Um, and is there something that ties them to... I mean, I, I see certainly connections in them, but, I mean, for you, what do you... Do you see something that kind of... Is there something for you that threads them all together? 
I mean, for me, the thing that seems to thread them all together is that they are all, you know, I mean, some way or other, they are all kind of a, basically about delusional men coming to realise that they're wrong about right. something, right. you know, either either through either either through delusion or naivety or. Um, um, but they seem to be movies about kind of very, very, uh, for want of a better phrase, toxically masculine worlds that. Um, you know, there are either there are either movies about uh, in which I am the protagonist. You know, I'm the lost kid trying to right. work it out, or they are movies about those world, those masculine worlds that frighten me. You know, yeah. Um, uh, you know, I was I was having a conversation with someone today about the. Someone was asking me what my my most my most powerful early film experiences were, and I was just suddenly remembered that they were horror movies. You know that right. I was always amazed that as a young kid that movies could make me feel something so viscerally powerful. Um, and I think that you know, and I'm I, I think I realised that I've carried that into my adulthood. You know, and now I'm, as I hopefully a slightly more mature man. You know, I'm. I've the things that frighten me are more sophisticated, but still that the the power of the thing that frightens me is what's at the core. Right. I mean, you think those men though they're trying to in in your movies they're in a way trying to act honorably, even though they're complicit in the sort of insane violence. Do you do you say that or or yeah yeah? Well, I mean, but the protagonists. Are, yeah yeah. I mean, each of those got you know Hal here and McChrystal and. Yeah. machine and yeah yeah that's certainly true of the of the protagonist right. so on some level i am either that kind of the, the naive lost one or the delusional one you know right <laughs> so in, in all those movies and particularly this movie that we just saw the performances are are just outstanding obviously from you know ben mendelson tonight and joel edgerton and and you know and obviously timothy chalamet and they're incredible performances and so i mean for for a director, it's you, know, you rarely get to see how other directors work, and so you know how do you how do you give direction? You know how do you how do you feel like you know you're getting those performances? Yeah, it's so true. You never get to no, you watch other directors see, yeah. work, which is one of the advantages that Joel Edgerton has, for instance. You know, because he's started directing movies. Right. Uh, and he's worked with a lot of directors and has had to has been able to watch them work. I just fudge my way through, you know. I just think it's about. Um, um, I've had that experience before of trying of trying to you know, for instance, directing actors of feeling like I need to be really careful about how I speak to them. You know that um, I can under no circumstances can I give them line readings. Um, you know, I must make sure that everything I say comes in the form of like a, a, a transitive verb. And good actors, as soon as they trust you, as soon as they um, they feel like they can tr they trust your taste, then they'll let you say anything. You know? Right. And um, and then that suddenly frees me up. You know, I know that I know that it's you know my job is to make sure I don't like overcomplicate. What they're working with, mm -hmm. you know, give make try and keep the direction simple, um, but uh, and playable. 
but um, I have I have come to realize that I don't need to be so um, you know literally by the how to direct actors book. Right. You know, I can, right. Yes, if they if they feel safe, a huge part of my job, especially in <coughs> pre-production and rehearsal, is just about encouraging them to see me as someone they can trust. And then once I've established that, then I can kind of say whatever I want. Right. And what is those? What are those rehearsals? Or those? What do they look like? I'm always surprised that I end up that they end up trusting me because I uh, I still to this day don't know how I don't. I was talking to Joel about this earlier today. I still don't know that I. I still don't know that I know exactly how to run a rehearsal room. It's partly the nature of movies, you know, that you never – it's so rare that you have everyone available to you. Right. I, I, I th- you know, and I think in an ideal world I would love to run a rehearsal like I think theatre rehearsals happen where you have the actors together, all of them together in the room for months and right. you just slowly work your way through it. So did you rehearse this movie though? Did you? We did, yeah. and we did it in that normal way where you do it over a couple of weeks, and sometimes you've got, you know, you've got different combinations of the actors, and you just try and, you know, I, I am even though I, I say I don't necessarily know how, I still don't know that I know how to run a rehearsal room. I am very firmly of the belief that anything you can get done in that room is valuable, right. so that you're not having to do it on set. And and so that you're just discovering things for discovering things for yourself, you know. And even if it's just simply a matter of sitting in the room and talking about not the movie, just you know, in in, in you know, with 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 the the aim of getting everyone comfortable with each other. I mean, that in itself is valuable. So then when you, you know, you come to the, the day of a particular scene, how does that, how do you put that scene on your, you know, what's your process as you, you know, you walk in that morning and begin? Are you, you have a, a set plan of where the camera is going to be or is it something that you discover or how, how do you work? I used to shot list quite um, meticulously and it has become more difficult for me because the last two movies I've done with multiple cameras and... I really love doing working with uh, multiple cameras. I didn't think I would love it, but um, you know, I remember there was. I, I mean, I remember. <laughs> I remember one sh- one scene on Animal Kingdom. It was four of our main characters sitting around a table in a diner at night, um, talking about what the hell they were going to do. And I took seven hours to shoot this scene and it was just me slowly working my way around the table with one camera. Mm. And by the end of it, they were almost about to physically attack each other and it was my fault. I was just driving them crazy, having them jammed in a booth. And there's something I really like about being able to move around a room much quicker. You know, I think the actors like it. So how would you do it now? Well, now you kind of now it becomes like a geometry puzzle. You know, mm-hmm. you get in there. I mean, the first thing, the the first part of the process is the same as it always was, which is you walk in, you block the scene. I feel freer to let them move around. In the old days, I would meticulously shot list, but that also meant that I was kind of locking them into positions in mm-hmm. the room before I'd even seen them block it. Um, I like to let them feel like they can, you know, like to steer it, but make them feel they can move wherever they need to be, but. It's always 
I don't know what it's like for you, but I always it's every 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 new scene is exactly the same. Where you walk in, you you start blocking it. It feels terrible, and then my job, the adrenalized, the exhilarating part of the job, is I've got like okay, um, I've got uh, like half an hour now to make it work, right. And, um, and it's exhilarating and I'm always amazed when we get there and it's exhausting because then you finally you get through that scene and then you're gonna, you go to set up the next one and it's like, okay, I've got to start again. Um, but it's, uh, you know, now it's, you know, you do that blocking, you, you set it, you know, you, I call it, okay, that's the shape of the scene and then I, you start, you set up the geometry puzzle with your, you know, your, your DP and... Uh, um, work out the way that you can most efficiently move around the room, ways that, the way that works for the light, um, but we'll also get what you need and um, without compromising the shots. Um, but it also, it, it, you know, I'll go in there. Obviously there, is lots, there are lots of moments where I have a, a clear idea about a particular shot I want to do or some particular way I want to cover the scene, but just in general the coverage feels... Um, if you know you, you kind of do have to roll with roll with the moment right right and how are you working with your with your director of photography or your you know are you setting the you know what's you're working with them in advance and you're designing it and again how do, how do, how are you working um well so adam Akapor, who shot the king i hadn't um, this was the first movie I've done with him since Animal Kingdom, and and the experience was very different for both of us. You know, and Animal Animal Kingdom was my first movie. It was basically Adam's first movie too. Um, and we worked, we prepped. You know, we had was a single camera. We were shooting on film. We would get together on the weekends. We'd shot list for the next the week to come. And you know, in the meantime, we've now gone off and done a whole lot of other things. You know, Adam's. You know, he shot. Uh, you know, he shot the whole of the first season of True Detective, and um, uh, you know, a number of other things. Uh, the whole of the first season of Top of the Lake. You know, um, and so, and I've made a bunch of other movies, and we've come together again, and we both just feel more comfortable in just working it out. You know, uh, um, but it, you know, and it's a negotiation. It's a, you know, you, Adam has a beautiful, beautiful eye and so he'll, um, he'll, he'll always be offering stuff up um, and then it's my job to work out whether or not that is the way that I want to tell the story, you know. And I have very specific, you know, it's like with the very particular ideas about the way, you know, the, the battle, for instance, the Battle of Agincourt in here, it was very important to me that... Um, I, w I wanted to shoot, I wanted to make sure I shot that battle with... A, with to whatever extent possible, a really clear point of view. Like you could follow a narrative through it, follow characters through it to whatever extent was possible, but also make sure it was all shot from human eye level, uh, you know, rather I didn't – so, you know, it was all about making sure that there were, you know, no cameras up cranes or, you know, no one was trying to pull a drone out of a truck or anything. You know. Did you storyboard that scene? I mean, the scene's amazing, actually. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we had to. There's no way. I mean, you know, um, it, 
I mean, we could have done it. It would have taken three months if we hadn't, you know. So we, we shot that. I think in an ideal world we might have had five weeks or something to do that. We, we, did, it in, we did the battle in ten days and it was That's incredible. And in order to do that we needed to plan it really carefully. Yeah. But, you know, again, no matter how much planning you do, you turn up on a stinking hot Hungarian field, at, you know, and, and all the plans go out the window. But at least you've got them there. You know, right. I, I, I know the basic bare bones of what I need and, uh, and the rest of it is just like sheer panic. You know? Right. Desperation. So um, I'm going to just open it up to the audience in a second. I'm just wondering, what do you have, um, what, are you, what are you working on now? Anything? Or have you just, you were telling me you've just literally just finished this, right? Yeah, we finished it and uh, finished, I, it was, I haven't had this experience before, finishing a movie and then packing a bag, getting on a plane and went straight to Venice and premiered it. You know, it was, right. it was kind of good to not, I, usually I find myself sitting around for a while. Yeah. Itchy, you know. Right. But I also, I, I'm actually was, I really don't, I have no idea what's next. I quite like that. I feel like all of everything I've made thus far has been something that I have dragged from the past into the present, you know. It's even yeah. Animal Kingdom because I was writing it for so long. Um, uh, I, I'm quite excited about the prospect of whatever the next thing is because whatever it is, it will be of me now, you know. But I have no idea. Well, either. right, you're still really in this. It's only a month since Venice or something, right? So Yeah, and I get out the end of it, the end of, I don't know about you, but I get at the end, end, out the end of every movie thinking I never want to make another one. I was going to ask you actually that specific question. <laughs> I mean, and so I where are you now in that, uh, pro are you recovering from that or you're forgetting or blocking it or you're still in the never want to make another movie again? No, I'm, I'm familiar with my the rhythms now. I can feel it just, you know, it's, it, that feeling hasn't passed yet, but right. I can feel it just ebbing away. Yeah, yeah. And what will happen is I'll find something. Something will, something will just suddenly completely capture my attention, and then I'll become obsessed with it. But, uh, but I can tell what's going on at the moment. The space for that to happen hasn't opened yet. Right. You know? Right. Good. Well, hopefully it will. So for for all of our benefits, does anybody have any questions? The question was, uh, what, what did um, uh, Plan B, the production company, play in the, you know, making of the film? Well, I, I had, um, I'd had a, a, a great experience working with them on my last movie. Um, I remember, um, um, I think I remember uh, Sarah back there will remember this. I think we were sitting in a restaurant in Paris when we were shooting a little Paris portion of War Machine with um, Dee Dee and, uh, well, anyway, I can't remember Pitt. if Jeremy was there, but Dee Dee Gardner and Jeremy Kleiner who run Brad Pitt's company and they were you know, saying, what's next? And I just I went, well, Joel and I have written this script that we love about Henry V and it, we just kind of, started rolling from there I mean it was it became quite organic and I also and then I brought my um, my uh, long time uh, lovely wonderful very talented Australian producer um, Liz Watts into the process too and um, it all felt it all felt very organic and uh, and um, yeah I really I, yeah I feel very well supported 
And is that what they bring to you, support, or do they also just their, you know, what what do they contribute? Support and taste, and um, you know, because I like I like having partners. You know, I, I like having people who tell me what they think. I like having people who offer, um, who give me feedback. You know, so it's very important to me that those people I'm working with have taste. You know, I'm not just looking for someone who'll um, organise it for me and then get out of my way. You know, I'm looking for people who will work with me trying to figure the thing out. And, and, um, uh, and yeah, that's what, that's what they give me. Somebody else? Hi. Um, I don't know. Is, is, is there something you think I need to tweak? Okay. No, kind I, of crowdsource. I, uh, yeah, right. Yeah. <clears throat> Re-edit. I have a strange relationship to them once they're finished in that I don't, you know, it's like everything, every single decision up until the point that you finish the final mix or whatever feels like a decision that could have gone the other way, you know. It's, you know, they all feel so crucial. And then as soon as it's over, it's over and I don't. And I had a weird, I had an ex, a very strange experience. It was well, not that strange. Um, I'm sure all directors have it in one way or another at some point. But I was, I was um, in a hotel room in Australia um, um, maybe at the beginning of last year. Um, and I was just bored and I turned on the television and Animal Kingdom came on. And I hadn't watched it in seven, eight years or something. And I... I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna watch this. I'm gonna sit through it, and I was frightened. I was worried that, on the one hand, I was worried that I'd watch it and go, um, you know, because it's a movie that I made that's still like it's probably the film that most people still talk about. You know, I was worried that I was going to watch it and and go, oh, it is actually very obviously better than everything else I've ever done, and I seem to be on a downward trajectory. Or I was also worried I'd watch it and go, oh, it's actually terrible and, and I'm a hack, you know. And I had this beautiful experience of watching it and going, oh, I'm proud of that movie. It's my, you know, it's my, it was my first movie. I, I, I think I'm a better filmmaker now. Um, but uh, but I'm, I'm proud of it and there's, there's – I, I know that if I made it today, I'd probably make it better. But I look at it and go, but I wouldn't bother. I wouldn't change anything about it. It was of me then, and and um, and I feel that way about all of them. You know, I've just there. That was I, that was me then. I made it, and what's next? You know. Did people hear that about Henry V and how the rousing yeah, speeches the rousing before yeah. battle? You know, yeah. that I mean, the, these are like, St. Crispin's Day speeches. You know, one of Shakespeare's. And yeah, and it was like, and it's funny you should mention it because you know Joel and I made a decision very early on for various reasons to move away from Shakespeare. Um, partly for reasons um, to do with form, you know, that it really did feel like uh, the, that version of this medieval movie I would make. I knew I wanted it to be kind of quite raw and real. I wanted to explore to whatever extent possible what the what 600 years ago might have felt like. Uh, and Shakespeare is written as, as glorious as it is. It's written to be presented on an Elizabethan stage. You know, I don't know that it, lent, it was going, ever going to lend itself to the kind of movie I wanted to make. 
But we knew that we had certain things that we needed to, you know, the 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 the, the key thing that made Shakespeare something that's going to follow us around everywhere is the, is Joel's character. You know, Falstaff is one of the great the great characters in all of English language literature. And and he is a purely Shakespearean conceit. And we knew we wanted to hang on to some form of him for Joel. And so that's so that's that. But beyond that, as soon as you know, uh, as soon as it um, came time to start writing, knowing that we were going to we were going to write our own language, build our own story around certain just basic um, flagpole tent poles of um, the story. I, I, I was, I'm surprised, amazed at how free I felt. You know, I never felt like I was having to compete with Shakespeare. I felt that what we were doing is very, very different. Um, except for some reason when it came to writing that big speech before Agincourt, it was, I really then felt like, oh, wow, okay, so um, how, how am I going to do this? I'm obviously not going to try and write a speech better than Shakespeare's. And I don't want to write a big super rousing speech anyway because that feels like a slightly hackneyed medieval kind of, you know, you deliver the big speech and then the crowd goes and the, the army roars. And what we liked, and it fits so perfectly with the kind of thematic, the th- way we were twisting the, this version of Henry V thematically as well was that, you know, this is a, in a way a story, we've turned it into a story about a, a young idealist who gets... Who, who was given great power and great responsibility and is manipulated into waging an illegitimate war. And so we, it allowed us to have a moment where we were at, you know, the night before the battle, he's sitting by the campfire with Falstaff and he says, I don't, I, I don't even know why we're here. And Falstaff says, well, man, you've got to work that out because those guys are all here for you and if you can't give them, if you don't know why you're here, then at least lie to them persuasively. And then that suddenly freed me up completely because it meant I can write the speech and it can be bullshit, you know. It's just like he's doing it not because he believes it but because they need to hear something. Um, and suddenly I felt free. It's like, oh, okay, I'm not competing with Shakespeare anymore. I'm, um, I'm, I'm doing it in a slightly different way, you know. So long as that speech is, is powerfully delivered by Timmy, then... Um, then it's doing. Then I get to have my cake and eat it too. Right, it's quite. It is quite rousing, actually. And yet, it's and there, kind no of elements nonsense. at all from the from the Shakespeare. No. That I think you I think you're probably talking about the shot at the end of his scene with Lily Rose, where she's kind of uh, pulled the rug out from under him, and he's talking about the profile shot of um, Hal. Yeah, I um, yeah, I like. I, just wanted to have that sense of you know it's like be be the, there's a you know a couple of two quite long dialogue scenes at the end of the movie and wanting to be reasonably strategic about how we covered them I kind of knew from early on that I think I wanted the first one with Lily Rose to be you know I'd, I'd leave Timmy in mid shot for pretty much what the whole scene and let her let creep into her close up and then when he walks into the next scene. Um, with uh, William, played by Sean Harris, to almost almost immediately get into his close Timmy's close up and stay there because of everything that's in his head. 
But that transition between the two scenes, you know, it's like once she's furnished him with this information that's starting to turn his world upside down to actually there's something about there's something about being there rather than here that lets you let I think makes me feel like um you can feel the cogs turning, you know. And did you did you cover that? Did you do you did you have it from the front also or did you make the choice that like I'm going to oh, take yeah. that risk and be at the on the side. Oh no, no, no you, you know. I, you you have it. Oh yeah. I mean, I'd like to say that no, I knew exactly to the frame what I was doing, but it's you know, I've 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 yeah. You just if you can point the camera at everything. Right. You know? Right. 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 Good. Yes, in the balcony. Um. The. But the, I mean, it was, you know, it's, uh, I mean, you know, you take an army of 10,000 to France, you know, it's like, I think, I don't think we ever had more than 280 extras on any given day. So, um, it's, you know, so much of it is, I mean, I, I, 280 can actually, you can make that feel like a lot of people. And we had 80 horses and I remember everyone telling me, you know you don't need that many horses and I... Um, you did need it or you don't need it? You don't. Oh, yeah. But I wanted them. And, um, and, uh, and I think, you know, I actually do think now in retrospect that we got a bit of bang for buck out of that because, uh, you know, 80 horses feels like a thousand. You know, you can just line them up anywhere and they, they feel like they go on forever but... You know, so much of it was just about crowd. I mean, really complex. It's so, it's so, it's actually. Fun. I haven't done a, a movie so visual effects heavy as this one before, and I had a lot of fun doing it. I, I thought it was going to slow us down, and everything was going to be very prescriptive, and you know, and everything needed to be planned within an inch of its life. But it's you know, you know as I'm sure people in the room know, it's amazing what you can do these days. You can, you can handhold an entire thing and fill it out with. You know, the Battle of Agincourt was kind of. A, a huge exercise in crowd replication. You know, some of its some of its comps, some of its th some of its three D, some of its um, uh, you can just go nuts. You know, yeah. And there weren't. Um, I mean, you know, like anyone, I had what I had was a really wonderful visual effects supervisor, a guy named Andrew Jackson, who he's. Um, he I actually he was he had lived in Australia for thirty five years working with Animal Logic and George Miller and he did Fury Road and then he moved he's actually English though and he moved back to London and did Dunkirk with Christopher Nolan. He is of very much of that school that anything you can do to to do it in camera or to or to make it feel like you've done it in camera is he's like a practical effects guy. That's where he started, and. And I, one of the reasons why I wanted to use him is, you know, it's, I look at Dunkirk and I go, that's, I love not knowing where the visual effects are. And I knew that he would help me achieve that. You know, some of those shots scared me, the ones of the, you know, ships at sea or the landing on the beach or, um, I love those shots because, I mean, you know, they can't be real, but still they have, they feel organic, you know. Good. Time for one more over here. Uh-huh. I'll tell Jane Petrie you said that. <laughs> no, I mean, it's weird that the, you know, the, uh, um, I mean, I think the costumes are beautiful and they are muted. You know, they are, you know, 
the, the, the truth is, you know, I, I wanted the thing to feel very authentic, but there are certain things where you just go, I can't do this, I can't. If we made that, if we, if we had costumed and designed the movie the way it probably would have looked, it would have, you'd, you'd be sick. It looked like the whole movie would look like a bag of Skittles, you know. Um, it's something about... Because they were actually more color. They were yeah, using more color in those color. times. Right. I mean, it's one of the things. There's certain things I wanted to do. You know, it's like when it, usually when you think of movies set in, in the Middle Ages, you think of kind of cold stone castles with their, um, you know... Uh, um, you know, kind of bare, dark, grey walls and, you know, that's just because most often people when they're making, shooting medieval movies, they shoot them in ruins or in old cathedrals or actually there was a lot of colour. There was like whitewash walls and tap, very colourful tapestries. And um, But there was something about a particular, you know, it's how young people died back then, their relationship to life and death. The psychological and spiritual impact that something like the plague must have had on people, you know, that at the time, the beginning of the 15th century, the population of London was about 30,000. Only 50 years earlier, it was 90,000. Two thirds of the population of the city was killed in the plague. I wanted the thing to feel dirty, you know, and, uh, and, and yeah. I, know, I never think of Skittles as dirty. I think it felt dirty. Yeah. Good. Okay. So I think that's it. Um, thank you and congratulations. Thank you for a great movie. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for doing this, Come, Neil, and thank coming you for coming to a theater. Yeah. yeah, coming to a theater and then a telly. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for more great Q&As with directors Greta Gerwig and Taika Waititi. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 